What a terrifying portrayal of revolution and war. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the first half of April's book For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway, published in 1940. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours, hopefully, on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month, the 22nd of April. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book. We can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Maybe you have thoughts you want to express about the book that I've missed or there's something you agree or really disagree with. I'd love to share your experiences in the next episode. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to chapter 19, that's page 266. A young man, Roberto, and an older man, Anselmo, are discussing recruiting a hundred men and storing explosives near a bridge, possibly to blow it up. Robert recalls communist General Galtz giving strict orders about blowing up of the bridge. He reflects on the idea of trust. Quote, He was often hungry, but he was not usually worried because he did not give any importance to what happened to himself and he knew from experience how simple it was to move behind the enemy lines in all this country. It was as simple to move behind them as it was to cross through them. If you had a good guide, it was only giving importance to what happened to you if you were caught that made it difficult. That and deciding whom to trust. You had to trust the people you worked with completely or not at all and you had to make decisions about the trusting. Robert Jordan trusted the man Anselmo so far in everything except judgment. He had not yet had an opportunity to test his judgment and anyway the judgment was his own responsibility. Galt says that quote has any attack been as it should and to expect some interference. Galt explains a complicated operation that involves blowing the bridge at the signal of planes starting to bomb and then the bridge will be repaired by communist forces so that Galtz can advance on La Granja. What on earth could go wrong, I'm thinking. Robert sees the old man Anselmo coming down the mountainside with another man called Pablo who was concerned about blowing the bridge near where he lives but he does sullenly help with the dynamite packs. Pablo trusts Robert more when he proves himself able to identify problems with horses, and we hear that Pablo has killed civil guards and blown up a train. Pablo does not want the bridge blown. Quote, and this is Pablo, I'm tired of being hunted. Here we are all right. Now, if you blow a bridge here, we'll be hunted. If they know we are here and hunt for us with planes, they will find us. If they send moors to hunt us out, they will find us and we must go. I'm tired of all this. You hear? He turned to Robert Jordan. What right have you, a foreigner, to come to me and tell me what I must do? They all carry off the explosives and Robert muses on his situation and then they go to a cave and meet a gypsy whittling badger traps. We hear how a character called Kashkin died. who was the person that came before Robert. He asked his comrades to kill him if he should be left behind. It's a very sad affair and Robert brushes it off with, quote, he must be crazy or jumpy. Is he lying to himself, I wonder? There's a girl called Maria at this cave who presents food to the men 
And interestingly, the Spanish don't talk when they eat. Quote, they were all eating out of the platter, not speaking, as is the custom of the Spanish. And I wonder, is that still the case? If you're Spanish, do let me know. Maria asks if he's blown up a train before, and he says three. And he states she was on the train that Kashkin, who formerly had Robert's job, blew up. She was a prisoner on the train, and Kashkin released her. She says, quote, he was a very brave man. There is definitely some chemistry between Robert and Maria. Robert asks to see the mujer, which is Spanish for woman, of Pablo. And Raphael, the gypsy, says, quote, she has a tongue that scolds and that bites like a bullwhip. With this tongue, she takes the hide from anyone in strips. She is of an unbelievable barbarousness. He goes on to describe the train explosion. Quote, Then it came, choo-choo, 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 steadily larger and larger. And then, at the moment of the explosion, the front wheels of the engine rose up and all of the earth seemed to rise in a great cloud of blackness and the roar and the engine rose high in the cloud of dirt and of the wooden ties rising in the air as in a dream and then it fell onto its side like a great wounded animal and there was an explosion of white steam before the clods of the other explosion had ceased to fall on us and the machina that's a machine gun, commenced to speak ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. It transpires that the muja of Pablo, who we find out later is called Pilar, saved Maria by forcing her to join their band and carrying her when she was too weak to walk. This muja of Pablo sounds like a very strong woman and very fierce. The conversation about blowing up the bridge is overheard by her. Quote, it was the only good thing we have done, said a deep voice. What are you doing now, you lazy, drunken, obscene, unsayable son of an unnameable married gypsy obscenity? What are you doing? And this is Pilar speaking, the woman of Pablo, the muja of Pablo. Continuing the quote, Robert Jordan saw a woman of about 50, almost as big as Pablo, almost as wide as she was tall, in black peasant skirt and waist, with heavy wool socks on heavy legs, black rope-soled shoes and a brown face like a model for a granite monument. She had big but nice-looking hands and her thick curly black hair was twisted into a knot on her neck. What a wonderful description. A model for a granite monument. She's a wonderful strong woman. She has high praise of Kashkin and says of Robert, quote, you're bigger than you look. And she ran her hand over his shoulder, feeling the muscle under the final shirt. Good, I'm very content that you have come. She immediately shows her dominance there. She calls Pablo a borracho, which is a drunkard in Spanish, and says that Maria is suffering and needs to be taken away. She also says that her Pablo has a sickness for her already. She palm reads Robert's hand, but doesn't reveal what she sees. Moving forward... Robert and Anselmo, the old man, go to look at the bridge to be blown. There is an in-depth description of the bridge and the environment and of the sentry box guard. Robert shows a lovely strength of character when spotting whether a formation of planes above is an enemy or not. Quote, They are Moscas, Anselmo said. 
Robert Jordan could have put the glasses on them and been sure instantly, but he preferred not to. It made no difference to him who they were tonight, and if it pleased the old man to have them be ours, he did not want to take them away. Now, as they moved out of sight towards Segovia, they did not look to be the green, red-wing-tipped, low-wing Russian conversion of the Boeing P-32 that the Spaniards called Moscas. You could not see the colours, but the cut was wrong. No, it was a fascist patrol coming home. He wants to be kind to his colleagues. He's protecting his colleagues. Anselmo and Robert discuss the morality of killing animals and men. And Anselmo has lost his faith in God. He says, quote, a man must be responsible to himself. He also says how similar bears are to men. Anselmo doesn't believe in the killing of the enemy in war. Quote, to kill them teaches nothing, Anselmo said. You cannot exterminate them because from their seed comes more with greater hatred. Prison is nothing. Prison only makes hatred. That's all our enemies should learn. He doesn't like battles. Quote, I've never seen a battle without running. Robert reflects that a battle may occur and that, quote, he resented Galtz's orders and the necessity for them. Robert tries to self-soothe. Quote, There is not you, and there are no people that things must not happen to. Neither you nor this old man is anything. You are instruments to do your duty. There are necessary orders that are no fault of yours, and there is a bridge, and that bridge can be the point on which the future of the human race can turn, as it can turn on everything that happens in this war. You have only one thing to do, and you must do it. Only one thing, hell, he thought. If it were one thing, it was easy. Stop worrying, he said to himself. Think about something else. So he thought about the girl, Maria. Augustine, a foul-mouthed camp guard, tells Robert, quote, guard well the explosive. And he continues to say that Anselmo is good. He also says that El Sordo is, quote, as good as Pablo is bad. They are the local boss types in this area. Robert goes into the cave and Pablo is there with the gypsy, the wife and the girl. He can tell they've been talking about him. Listen to this amazing description. You can tell they're just sitting there not speaking because Robert is given thinking time. Quote, It was warm and smoky in the cave. There was a table along one wall with a tallow candle stuck in a bottle on it. And at the table were seated Pablo, three men he did not know, and the gypsy, Raphael. The candle made shadows on the wall behind the men and Anselmo stood where he had come into the right of the table. The wife of Pablo was standing over the charcoal fire on the open fire hearth in the corner of the cave. The girl knelt by her stirring an iron pot. She lifted the wooden spoon out and looked at Robert Jordan as he stood there in the doorway and he saw, in the glow from the fire, the woman was blowing with the bellows the girl's face, her arm the drops running down from the spoon and dropping into the iron pot. Robert passes Pablo a drink and he has a memory. I call this a Madeline moment from Proust. So it causes him to remember, quote, there was very little of it left and one cup of it took the place of the evening papers, of all the old evenings in cafes, of all chestnut trees that would be in bloom now in this month, of the great slow horses of the outer boulevards, of bookshops, of kiosks and of galleries, of the Parc Monserie, of the Stade Buffalo and of the Butte Chamin of the Garante Trust Company and the Ile de la Cité of Foyer's old hotel and of being able to read and relax in the evening of all the things he had enjoyed and forgotten and that came back to him when he had tasted that opaque, bitter, tongue-numbing, brain-warming, stomach-warming, idea-changing liquid alchemy. Pablo does not want the bridge blown and makes his feelings very clear again. 
Quote, We will be hunted then like a beast after this thing from which we derive no profit and maybe die in it. He goes on, This foreigner comes here to do a thing for the good of the foreigners. For his good we must be sacrificed. I'm for the good and safety of all. Safety, the wife of Pablo said, there's no such thing as safety. There are so many seeking safety here now that they make a great danger. In seeking safety now, you lose all. She stood now by the table with the big spoon in her hand. There is safety, Pablo said. Within the danger there is the safety of knowing what chances to take. It is like the bullfighter who, knowing what he is doing, takes no chances and is safe. Until he is gored, the woman said bitterly. How many times have I heard matadors talk like that before they took a goring? How often have I heard Finito say that it is all knowledge and that the bull never gored the man, rather than the man gored himself on the horn of the bull? Always do they talk that way in their arrogance before a goring. Afterwards, we visit them in the clinic. The situation gets tense. Robert Jordan checks where his gun is. And Pablo's wife is, quote, for the Republic, and the Republic is the bridge. We see in that quote, I think, Hemingway's reference to bullfighting. He adored the spectacle. Bullfighting was a major theme in many of his works. There is a battle for dominance between Pablo and his wife, quite clearly. But ultimately, the wife and the blowing of the bridge win. We really see another side to the wife of Pablo at the end of the chapter, have a listen to this. Quote, The woman of Pablo could feel her rage changing to sorrow and to a feeling of the thwarting of all hope and promise. She knew this feeling from when she was a girl and she knew the things that caused it all through her life. It came now suddenly and she put it away from her and would not let it touch her, neither her nor the Republic. Outside the cave, the gypsy sings racist songs and then questions why Robert didn't kill Pablo when he had the chance. And Robert muses on the problem of Pablo. Quote, If it is true, as the gypsy says, that they expected me to kill Pablo, then I should have done that. But it was never clear to me that they did expect that. For a stranger to kill, where he must work with the people afterwards, is very bad. It may be done in action, and it may be done if backed by sufficient discipline. But in this case, I think it would be very bad, although it was a temptation and seemed a short and simple way. But I do not believe anything is that short nor that simple in this country. And while I trust the woman absolutely, I could not tell how she would react to such a drastic thing. One dying in such a place can be very ugly, dirty and repugnant. You could not tell how she would react. Without the woman, there is no organisation nor any discipline here. And with the woman, it can be very good. It would be ideal if she would kill him or if the gypsy would, but he will not. Or if the sentry, Augustine, would. Anselmo will, if I ask it, though he says he is against all killing. He hates him, I believe, and he already trusts me and believes in me as a representative of what he believes in. Only he and the woman really believe in the Republic as far as I can see, but it is too early to know that yet. I'm questioning whether the gypsy really is to be trusted. We learn from a conversation with Maria that Robert is not communist, but, quote, anti-fascist, hence his involvement in the Spanish Civil War. And we learn that Robert's father was a Republican in the USA and shot himself to avoid torture. Robert is affectionate to Miriam and asks to speak to Pilar, who's Pablo's wife, alone. He alludes to the killing of Pablo and she responds with, quote, It is not needful. The mind of the gypsy is corrupt. And when referring to Pablo, she says, quote, He has passed all capacity for danger. Maria shares Robert's, quote, robe 
I think that's a sleeping bag, and she implies she has been raped. Robert tells her this does not affect his love for her. The narrator notes that, quote, something had happened to him and she knew it. I'm thinking, will this be a problem later in the novel? They make love and Maria is of the belief that it will exercise some of the ghosts of her past. And I really hope so. The next day, a squadron of planes fly past and Robert tries to figure out why. He thinks that, quote, they can't know about the attack, though they've known about all the others, end quote. Pablo is clearly smitten by his horses and inquires about their safety and whether they may have been spotted. Robert sends Anselmo to note any vehicles or troops that pass on the road and he tells Raphael to time the change of the guard on sentry. There's some lovely characterization when Robert asks, can you tell the time? Raphael answers with, quote, 12 o'clock midday, hunger. 12 o'clock midnight, sleep. 6 o'clock in the morning, hunger. 6 o'clock at night, drunk, with luck. 10 o'clock at night, shut up, Robert Jordan said. We see there Raphael's lightheartedness, yet anger at Robert's inability or indecision to kill Pablo. It reminds me a little bit of Hamlet. And then we see Robert's charisma and ability to diffuse what could be a tense situation. He's a good manager. Everyone is clearly scared about those planes that passed overhead. But Robert reassures them, quote, they've gone to bomb an airfield. I'm concerned they do know about the attack and that Robert's plan is about to go up in smoke. And the very next page, we hear a character called Fernando who spies and has heard rumours of this, quote, Republican offensive in La Granja by those who work in the power plant. Oh dear. He also says, quote, troops may be sent to clear out the mountains, but, quote, it is not to give any importance to. Pilar describes her heady youth making love to the Toreador Finito in Valencia. Quote, we ate in pavilions on the sand, pastries made of cooked and shredded fish and red and green peppers and small nuts like grains of rice, pastries delicate and flaky and the fish of a richness that was incredible, prawns fresh from the sea sprinkled with lime juice. They were pink and sweet and there were four bites to a prawn. Of those we ate many, then we ate paella with fresh seafood, clams in their shells, mussels, crayfish and small eels. Then we ate even smaller eels alone cooked in oil and as tiny as bean sprouts and curled in all directions and so tender they disappeared in the mouth without chewing, all the time drinking a white wine, cold, light and good at 30 centimos the bottle. She goes on in a similar vein and it sounds absolutely fabulous, I must go there. The planes return and they watch them. They're followed by a very low formation. They can actually see the pilots. Pablo is afraid of death in some way and Pilar has little faith in him, but Augustine considers him very smart. Pilar has quite clearly taken authority from Pablo, but Augustine seems to think he should be consulted and not consigned to the scrap heap. Quote, he is very smart and if we do not do this smartly, we are obscenitied. Pillar says, if Pablo is so smart, why does he not see that? And Augustine says, he wants things as they are for his own weakness. He wants to stay in the eddy of his own weakness, but the river is rising. Forced to a change, he will be smart in the change. And Pilar says, it is good that the boy did not kill him. And Augustine says, the gypsy wanted me to kill him last night. The gypsy is an animal. The talent is Pablo. And he carries on, to make war, all you need is intelligence, but to win, you need talent and material. I do like the obscenity quotes <laughs> instead of having swear words. This is the 1940s, I guess. As they travel to El Sordo, Pillar philosophizes on beauty and ugliness. 
and she considers herself ugly. Both Maria and Robert disagree, though. And then we get a very, very harsh story in chapter 10. Pilar describes the horrific start of the Civil War as the fascists in Pablo's town are rounded up and killed. It is a really difficult read as a tragic start to this confrontation. Pilar says that, quote, drunkenness and cruelty had entered into the lines. She goes on to say, quote, In Spain, drunkenness, when produced by other elements than wine, is a thing of great ugliness, and the people do things that they would not have done. Is it not so in your country, Inglés? That's Robert. And then Robert goes on to describe a lynching he witnessed in America, and he can't be sure whether the mob were drunk or not. Basically, uh, terrible acts can occur anywhere. It's a moving and devastating account of the start of the revolution. As I said, Robert meets Jerkin, who lost his family in the conflict. And we learn that Robert has lived in Spain for 10 years. This is one of our main questions, I think. Will Jerkin be reunited in any way with his family? Robert worries that Maria is merely a dream, like his thoughts of film stars, but he touches her arm and she smiles up at him. Quote, it was true, all right. They get to Sordos and Jurkin mentions that his brother-in-law may be alive still. Quote, as the boy stood there, Maria reached up, put her arms around his neck and kissed him. Jurkin turned his head away because he was crying. That is a brother, Maria said to him. I kissed thee as a brother. The boy shook his head, crying without making any noise. I am thy sister, Maria said, and I love thee, and thou hast a family. We are all my family. How tragic to have lost a whole family. I really feel sorry for this Jerkin character. Although Anselmo said there were, quote, hundreds of fighters in the hills, El Sordo can only muster four dependable fighters. Pilar asks El Sordo where they should escape to after the bridge is blown, and Robert suggests escaping to Gredos, where they can do more damage to the fascists than escaping to the Republic, or the Republican zone. They discuss the difficulty of escaping if the bridge is blown in daylight rather than nighttime, but these are Robert's orders to blow it during the day, otherwise he'll be shot. Pilar expresses her jealousy that Maria will have Robert for a lover and will lose Maria. And then Robert and Maria make love in the grass. Robert reflects on his love for Maria and how a whole lifetime might be experienced in just a few days. Quote, There is only now, and if now is only two days, then two days is your life and everything in it will be in proportion. This is how you live a life in two days. And if you stop complaining and asking for what you never will get, you will have a good life. A good life is not measured by any biblical span. This is a really important theme throughout this novel, I think. Pilar inquires whether the earth moved for Maria, and Maria says yes, and she says the earth only moves three times in a lifetime. Robert tires of Pilar's fortune-telling ways. He's still concerned she saw something in his hand when he read it, and she predicts it will snow, and it does. Talking of earth moving, the love making scene between Robert and Maria is really well written. I think it borrows ideas from stream of consciousness writing, maybe. Listen to this, quote, Then there was the smell of heather crushed and the roughness of the bent stalks under her head and the sun bright on her closed eyes and all his life he would remember the curve of her throat with her head pushed back into the heather roots and her lips that moved smallly and by themselves and the fluttering of the lashes on the eyes tight closed against the sun and against everything and for her everything was red, orange, gold, red from the sun on the closed eyes. 
And it all was that colour, all of it, the filling, the possessing, the having, all of that colour, all in a blindness of that colour. For him, it was a dark passage which led to nowhere, then to nowhere, then again to nowhere, once again to nowhere, always and forever to nowhere, heavy on the elbows in the earth to nowhere, dark, never any end to nowhere, hung on all time, always to unknowing nowhere, this time and again for always to nowhere, now not to be born, once again always unto nowhere, now beyond all bearing up, up, up and into nowhere, suddenly, scaldingly, holdingly, all nowhere gone, and time absolutely still, and they were both there, time having stopped, and he felt the earth move out and away from under them. That writing really reminds me a little bit of Gertrude Stein, just the rhythm of the language, and it kind of loses literal meaning, it just starts to turn into rhythmic, pure, physical, pulsing sounds. Pilar seems to possibly foresee her own death, since she says the earth will only ever move for her twice. But Robert doesn't really believe in any of her gypsy ways. Quote, I do not believe in ogres, Sooth says, fortune tellers or chicken crut gypsy witchcraft. Oh, said Pilar. Continuing on, Robert seems to be losing the plot a bit. I think the implied author wants to create this effect of Maria on his psyche, which is breaking down his maybe perhaps more business-like demeanour that he had at the beginning of the novel. What do you think? He seems to be having more internal conflicts and narrating his thoughts aloud a lot more than perhaps at the beginning of the novel. Here's an example, quote, and this is Robert thinking... But, oh boy, he thought, oh Pablo, oh Pila, oh Maria, oh you two brothers in the corner whose names I've forgotten and must remember, but I get tired of it sometimes. Of it and of you and of me and of the war and why and all why did it have to snow now? That's too much. No, it's not. Nothing is too much. You just have to take it and fight out of it and now stop prima donnering and accept the fact that it is snowing as you did a moment ago. And the next thing is to check with your gypsy and pick up your old man. But to snow now in this month, cut it out, he said to himself, cut it out and take take it it's that cup you know how did it go about that cup he'd either have to improve his memory or else never think of quotations because when you miss one it hung in your mind like a name you had forgotten and you could never get rid of it how did it go about that cup it seems to be having lots of internal conflicts and listen to this internal dialogue quote it hit you then and you know it and so why lie about it you went all strange inside every time you looked at her and every time she looked at you so why don't you admit it all right i'll admit it <laughs> reminds me a bit of the split personality of Gollum in the lord of the rings and maria i think is maybe making him question lots what do you think i actually looked back at the chapter to see if this internal dialogue is less present but it is there even right at the front of the book so it just might be a matter of his character this is on page 17 and he's thinking about pablo quote the only good sign was that pablo was carrying the pack and that he had given him the carbine perhaps he's always like that robert jordan thought maybe he's just one of the gloomy ones no he said to himself don't fool yourself you do not know how he was before but you do know that he's going bad fast and without hiding it when he starts to hide it he will have made a decision remember that he told himself Anyway, back to the cave with Pilla. She recounts more tales of Finito, her matador lover. She describes the horror of bullfighting and the injuries it did Finito. When it is mentioned that Finito was tubercular, Pilar says, quote, Who wouldn't be tubercular from the punishment he received? 
In this country where no poor man can ever hope to make money unless he is a criminal like Jean March or a bullfighter or a tenor in the opera. Bullfighting, therefore, seems to be a way out for Finito to lift himself out of poverty. So he ultimately died from a goring due to his short stature. Pilar says, quote, It was difficult for him to get out from over the horn because of his short stature. Nearly always the side of the horn struck him, but of course many were only glancing blows. And Primitivo says, If he was so short, he should not have tried to be a matador. Pilar looked at Robert Jordan and shook her head. Then she bent over the big iron pot, still shaking her head. What a people they are, she thought. What a people, the Spaniards. And if he was so short, he should not have tried to be a matador. And I hear it and say nothing. I have no rage for that. And having made an explanation, I am silent. How simple it is when one knows nothing. Que sencillo. Knowing nothing, one says, he was not much of a matador. Knowing nothing, another says, he was tubercular. And another says, after one, knowing, as explained, if he was so short, he should not have tried to be a matador. I think poverty forced him into this profession. After Finito died, she took up with Pablo, who, quote, led picador horses in a ring. And in bullfighting, a picador is a person who goes the bull with a lance. This would explain Pablo's love of horses. Raphael, the gypsy, returns from watching the bridge to report troop movements. Robert is led to the old man and Selma to find out about the movement of cars across the bridge. And Anselmo does not understand the significance of certain motor cars. Quote, It was not unusual amount of cars to move upon that road, but Anselmo did not distinguish between the Fords, Fiat's, Opals, Renaults and Citroens of the staff of the division that held the passes and the lines of the mountain and the Rolls Royces, Lancias, Mercedes and Isotas of the general staff. This was the sort of distinction that Robert Jordan should have made and if he had been there instead of the old man, he would have appreciated the significance of these cars which had gone up. But he was not there and the old man simply made a mark for a motor car going up the road on the sheet of note paper. Is this the first time the narrator is critical of Robert's decision-making? We telegraph into the mill, or we're transported. He is watching where the fascists are warm and discussing their superior air power. And Anselmo reflects on the terrible sin of killing and resolves to tell Robert his thoughts. Robert arrives at Anselmo's post and he is impressed with Anselmo's commitment to staying at the post during a snowstorm. He wonders whether Fernando would have been as disciplined. Then we go back to the cave. Pablo talks of his regrets at killing all the fascists in his hometown. Quote, all the people I've killed fill me with sorrow. And he goes on, we should have killed all or none. Pablo's obviously quite drunk, Drink seems to be very popular amongst all of the characters. Robert and Pablo get into an argument over a question about whether it will continue to snow. Robert tells Pablo he is cowardly rather than drunk. And Robert thinks, quote, I'd like to kill him and have it over with. I don't know what he's going to do, but it is nothing good. Day after tomorrow is the bridge and this man is bad and he constitutes a danger to the success of the whole enterprise. Come on, let us get it over with. I think the real dispute is really to do with the fact that Robert is American, whereas Pablo is Spanish. And he's already said, oh, you know, a foreigner has come here to tell us what to do. And also perhaps Pablo is older and he's not the leader anymore, whereas Robert is younger and he has obviously got quite a leadership role. I think it's maybe mirrored slightly in Pilar's outspoken jealousy of Maria. 
At least she said it out loud. Personally, I think it was quite brave for Pablo to regret openly the killing of the fascists. This was not a cowardly act to admit that. Both Robert and Augustine try to provoke Pablo, but he constantly says, quote, I will not be provoked before leaving to tend to his horses. Remember, Pablo and El Sordo, quote, own the land, as Alan Salmo on page 49 said. Quote, this is the country of Pablo and El Sordo. In their country, we must deal with them unless it's something that can be done alone. The whole band seems to want Pablo dead. And they are acting like the mob in Pablo's home village. What concrete reasons do they have for wanting to kill Pablo other than... One, he's against blowing up the bridge because it will expose their home. And two, he regrets the brutal killing of the fascists of his hometown. And three, he's a rude drunk. Or am I missing something? Dare I say it, I'm kind of feeling slightly sorry for Pablo. Anyway, continuing on. Robert Jordan agrees to kill him just before Pablo re-enters and says, quote, you were speaking of me? A bit of an awkward moment there. Augustine argues with Pablo and Robert thinks, quote, maybe Augustine is going to do it. He certainly hates him enough. I don't hate him, he thought. No, I don't hate him. He is disgusting, but I do not hate him, though that blinding business put him in a special class. Still, this is their war, but he's certainly nothing to have around for the next two days. I'm going to keep well away from it, he thought. I made a fool of myself with him once tonight and I'm perfectly willing to liquidate him, but I'm not going to fool with him beforehand. And there are not going to be any shooting matches or monkey business in here with that dynamite around either. Pablo thought of that, of course. And did you think of it, he said to himself. No, you did not, and neither did Augustine. You deserve what happens to you, he thought. I'm going to keep a way out of it, he thought. Now, this blinding business is very interesting. I have no recollection of Pablo blinding anyone. And I went back to look, and I can't see anything about him blinding the Guardia Seville. He does shoot them, but I don't believe he blinds them. The genius of the implied author, he or she implants a false memory, perhaps? Pablo did not blind any Seville Guardia. If I'm wrong, let me know. But I've gone through chapter 10 and there is no reference to it. He dispatches the four Guardia Seville at gunpoint. Anyway, continuing on. Pablo comes back in and says he's changed his mind. He's for the bridge blowing and he is the only one capable of leading them all to Grado's after. Augustine leaves saying the place is like an insane asylum, manicomio in Spanish. So the position with Pablo goes back to what it was. Robert imagines being on a merry-go-round with the ups and downs of whether Pablo should be dispatched. Quote, it is perfectly clear, and I do not think there are any holes in it. The two posts will be destroyed and the bridge will be blown according to Galtz's orders. And that is all of my responsibility. All of this business of Pablo is something with which I should never have been saddled. And it will be solved one way or another. There will be Pablo or there will be no Pablo. I care nothing about it either way. But I am not going to get on that wheel again. Twice I have been on that wheel and twice it has gone around and come back to where it started. And I'm taking no more rides on it. As Robert meticulously plans the bridge-blowing operation, he looks across at Pablo. He compares him to the American Civil War leader, Grant, who was also reportedly a drunkard. He muses, quote, I bet Grant would be furious with the comparison with Pablo. Augustine tries to wind up Pablo, but Pablo does not rise to the bait. 
And then Robert imagines going on leave in Madrid after the job and eating at his favourite hotel Gaylords. He reflects on the people he knows back in Madrid, Kharkov, for example, a reporter, and Hans, and also the fact that there are no, quote, military geniuses in this war. It's such a condensed narrative. We have only spent two days with Robert, yet we're 250 pages in the book. Robert describes the feeling of being part of the fighting force against the fascists. Quote, you felt that you were taking part in a crusade. That was the only word for it, although it was a word that had been so worn and abused that it no longer gave its true meaning. You felt, in spite of all bureaucracy and inefficiency and party strife, something that was like the feeling you expected to have and did not have when you made your first communion. It was a feeling of consecration to a duty toward all of the oppressed of the world, which would be as difficult and embarrassing to speak about as religious experience. And yet it was authentic as the feeling you had when you heard Bach or stood in Chartres Cathedral or the Cathedral at Lyon and saw the light coming through the great windows or when you saw Mantegna and Greco and Bruegel in the Prado it gave you a part in something that you could believe in wholly and completely and in which you felt an absolute brotherhood with the others who were engaged in it it was something that you had never known before but that you had experienced now and you gave such importance to it and the reasons for it that your own death seemed of complete unimportance only a thing to be avoided because it would interfere with the performance of your duty but the best thing was that there was something you could do about this feeling and this necessity too. You could fight. So you fought, he thought. And in the fighting soon, there was no purity of feeling for those who survived the fighting and were good at it, not after the first six months. He describes a time when his reporter friend Kharkov was responsible for the care of three wounded Russian soldiers. In the event that Madrid should be abandoned, he was instructed to poison them. Quote, it was of the greatest importance that there should be no evidence of any Russian intervention to justify an open intervention by the fascists. And Kharkov was to, quote, destroy all evidence of their identity before leaving the Palace Hotel. No one could prove from the bodies of three wounded men, one with three bullet wounds in his abdomen, one with his jaw shot away and his vocal cords exposed, one with his femur smashed to bits by a bullet and his hands and face so badly burned that his face was just an eyelashless, eyebrowless, hairless blister that they were Russians. No one could tell from the bodies of these wounded men he would leave in beds at the palace that they were Russians. Nothing proved the naked dead man was a Russian. Your nationality and your politics did not show when you were dead. Robert reflects that one soon loses one's naivety in war or perhaps one becomes corrupted. He continues his reminiscences. During an attack on Madrid, Robert had to drag a dead man out of a car only to assist another who was dying of an arm wound nearby. And we also have a scene where Robert sees a British economist and swears at him, disgusted by what he has written. He writes about war, but doesn't have a strong experience of actual warfare. Quote, A certain British economist had spent much of his time in Spain. Robert Jordan had read this man's writing for years, and he had always respected him without knowing anything about him. He had not cared very much for what this man had written about Spain. It was too clear and simple and too open and shut, and many of the statistics he knew were faked by wishful thinking. Continuing on, Kharkov has read Robert Jordan's one academic book and liked the writing style, and Robert resolves to write another one. Quote, But only about the things he knew truly and about what he knew, but I will have to be a much better writer than I am now to handle them, he thought. The things he had come to know in this war were not so simple. Quite a tough and dramatic first half detailing the horrors of this civil war. There's some interesting questions to come out of this first half, perhaps not the most important, Yerkin's brother-in-law, I'm hoping he'll be found. 
another question, will anything get in the way of Maria and Robert's love? And will Maria continue to thrive? Will the bridge-blowing operation go successfully? And what did Pilar see in Robert's hand when she read his palm? And will Robert kill Pablo like Raphael said he should? There's some really interesting ideas in this. The physical description of Galt's after his scene is quite interesting from a literary point of view. Usually you get a description of someone before they enter the scene, but here it is after the scene. Quote, That was the last he had seen of Galtz with his strange white face that never tanned, his hawk eyes, the big nose and thin lips, and the shaven head crossed with wrinkles and with scars. Why might that be? Maybe the author wants to create a conflict in your mind about him, a disjunct... Another interesting idea is obviously Robert as a foreigner fighting an ideological war in another country. It's not unlike Pyle in The Quiet American, if you read that book alongside me. Pablo says to Robert, quote, What right have you, a foreigner, to come to me and tell me what I must do? I think it's interesting, this idea of Maria's hair is talked about constantly and maybe it's a symbol of freedom she has her hair cut and this seems to have really be a limit to her freedom and they're constantly talking about how she's going to be more beautiful when she has long hair and it's just very interesting that it's mentioned so much and it's such a, a symbol of freedom and it sounds quite sort of dated really in the way it's written about and I've already mentioned this developing sort of split personality in Robert. There's these internal dialogues that keep on cropping up. So, for example, so why don't you admit it? All right, I'll admit it. He's constantly questioning himself. There's incredible attention to detail when it comes to the description of war. Listen to this passage. It's quite a long one. Quote, They came down to the mouth of the cave where a light shone out from the edge of a blanket that hung over the opening. The two packs were at the foot of the tree covered with a canvas... And Robert Jordan knelt down and felt the canvas wet and stiff over them. In the dark, he felt under the canvas in the outside pocket of one of the packs and took out a leather-covered flask and slipped it in his pocket. Unlocking the long, barred padlocks that passed through the grommet that closed the opening of the mouths of the packs and untying the drawstring at the top of each pack, he felt inside them and verified their contents with his hands. Deep in one pack, he felt the bundle of blocks in the sacks, the sacks wrapped in the sleeping robe, and tying the strings of that and pushing the lock shut again, he put his hands into the other and felt the sharp wood outline of the box of the old exploder, the cigar box with the caps, each little cylinder wrapped around and round with its two wires, the lot of them packed as carefully as he had packed his collection of wild bird eggs when he was a boy. The stock of the submachine gun, disconnected from the barrel and wrapped in his leather jacket. The two pans and five clips in one of the inner pockets, the big pack sack, and the small coils of copper wire and the big coil of light insulated wire in the other. In the pocket with the wire, he felt his pliers and the two wooden awls for making holes in the end of the blocks. And then, from the last inside pocket, he took a big box of the Russian cigarettes of the lot he had from Galtz's headquarters and tying the mouth of the pack shut... He pushed the lock in, buckled the flaps down and again covered both packs with the canvas and Selma had gone on into the cave. The author seems to have such first-hand experience and Hemingway was very much involved in the military. But such incredible detail about army logistics. Another interesting idea is this idea of personalities in war and how they can be faked. General Grant probably wasn't an alcoholic like Pablo. Quote, 
Wasn't Grant supposed to be drunk a good part of the time during the Civil War? Certainly he was. I'll bet Grant would be furious at the comparison if he could see Pablo. The idea of celebrity or manufactured image is as important in war as in peacetime. I guess I naively think that war strips away personality and other peacetime ideas like advertising and commerce, but it certainly doesn't. Um, we, we know that from propaganda. If anything, perhaps war encourages people to cling to single ideas such as peasant to help the brain simplify the extraordinary complex situations. Robert reflects on these deceptions. Quote, He knew enough to accept the necessity for all the deception and what he learned at Gaylord's only strengthened him in his belief in the things that he did hold to be true. He liked to know how it really was, not how it was supposed to be. There was always lying in war. But the truth of Lister, Modesto and El Campesino was much better than the lies and legends. Well, someday they would tell the truth to everyone and meantime he was glad there was a Gaylord's for his own learning of it. Gaylord's is the sort of restaurant place where he learned so much about the civil war from other people what were the main ideas that you took out of this first half novel i'd love to hear your thoughts i'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book bewilderment by richard powers there were some wonderful comments on the web and on goodreads and i also found a really interesting article by richard powers on his motivations for writing the book I'll quote directly from the interview. Quote, I was locked down in half a million acres of wilderness when the pandemic hit. I went into quarantine in the Great Smoky Mountains. It was a lucky place to be locked down with half a million acres of wilderness in my backyard. But it proved to be a hard place to begin writing a new novel. I couldn't travel to explore the places where a new story might unfold. I couldn't interview people in person or gather print materials in a library the way I usually do when setting out on a new project. But I pressed ahead in isolation, trying to fashion a story out of old bits of material that I had squirrelled away for years. A month or two in, I hit the wall. My characters weren't coming alive and I knew that something was wrong with my plot. When I can't write, it's usually a sign that I shouldn't be writing. And the best remedy I know for that impasse is to get out and walk. I walked almost every day for a few weeks. One overcast afternoon, four miles down a remote trail that tracked a steep mountain stream. I felt a small boy walking alongside me, taking in the nearby heron that was fishing in the Cascades, looking up at the tunnels of rhododendron and down at the carpets of hepatica and rue anemone. He seemed to say, "'Are you for real?' It was the same phrase that a friend's beloved son, who had special needs, had always liked to ask me when he couldn't tell if I was being serious or just teasing. I thought that this visitor was asking if the world really was as rich and wild and lucky as the trail we were on. Then it seemed he was asking if we were really letting it all disappear. The vague impression passed quickly, but by the time I turned back and retraced the four miles to the trailhead, I could see my story's central character in detail. And that's an interview from The Guardian. Marilise on Goodreads said, quote, This was a very strange but at times compelling book. It had many moments that I truly loved, but coupled with the rushed and seemingly careless ending, it turned into a mediocre book for me. I so enjoyed the loving relationship between a boy who had a mixture of OCD, ODD and autism, with a father who dreamed of the stars and the universe. There were serious overtones of climate change, which in my opinion compromised the story at times. This is science fiction, and with its no-name mentioned of a previous administration and many diatribes about lawmakers at times deserved. 
I know climate issues are ever so important, but unless we get the planet's countries to cooperate, the efforts of our country are minimal. One thing that did bother me was that the father knew that that species dying off was a definite trigger of his son's behaviour. Poor child had no friends, no close relatives, and once removed from school, no social interactions with other children. The father refused to try medications, which might have helped, but instead chose to use a radical new technology, not knowing what the outcome would be. And that ending, well, I felt it was a cop-out, one that left out the future and made for much bleakness. Romans said, Such a rich, multi-layered and passionate book that explores astrobiology, the funding of scientific research, man's predations of the planet, US politics around all these issues, but the heart of the story lies in a tender tale of paternal love for a nine-year-old son deemed different by his school and medical professionals who want to pathologise him and put him on drugs to control his behaviour. I'm not usually one to go all mushy over kids in books, but young Robin just stole my heart with intelligence and his care and his original outlook, and I loved this. Powers wears his learning lightly, but some of the science made my head spin. All the same, the very human story that binds this complex book together won me over completely. Sean Barr said... Whilst the novel explores many modern themes in a clever way, it lacks the energy and power of the overstory. It is also simpler, less chaotic and far more precise. There's much less to take away too in comparison, but I do hope Powers builds on these themes in latter books. He's quite sensitive with them, but I feel like there's still much left to say. This is a very good novel, but it could have been a great one if it had a little more energy. And Paramjit on Goodreads said, quote, I really felt for Theo when it came to responding to the innocent and idealistic Robin's bafflement at humanity's insanity and self-destructiveness when it comes to the environment and the multitude of life that comprise our complex ecosystems, allowing the planet to reach such a crisis point. There is little in the way of answers to the eco-challenges we face on Earth. This is a heartbreaking and despairing read in so many ways. But what shines in this novel is the depth and intimacy of Theo and Robin's father-son relationship, the nature of human consciousness and the importance of all life on earth thanks very much for listening if you have any questions or comments i'd love to hear them email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the bookshook youtube channel i'd also love suggestions for future books to read together maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started talking of next books after the next episode in three weeks where i discuss the second half of a whom the bell tolls that's the 29th of april may's book will be the animals in that country by laura jean mckay so get that one at the ready if you can anyway i look forward to discussing the second half of for whom the bell tolls in three weeks see you then Mm -hmm.